All right, y'all, here we go. 1 Timothy chapter 1, just verses 1 and 2. If you're a guest, doesn't mean that the link's any shorter just because there's fewer verses. Just letting my dad know here. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. While you're turning there, I'm always amazed at what the Lord does in the timing of the sermons that we plan out and when they fall. Because we started 1 Timothy, and now it's Mother's Day. And, you know, the question is we're doing just some behind the scenes, making sure everything's, you know, settled for Sunday. The question always comes up, well, what are you preaching for for uh, Mother's Day. I'm like, well, it might be this verse over here, but we are in 1 Timothy, so we're probably just going to keep going because we all just need the Word, and the Word works within us. And then I start reading, and I start studying, and the Lord's like, whoa, whoa, don't rush past verse 1 and 2, because we do. We tend to read the salutation at the very beginning, that greeting, and then we're like, okay, Paul and Timothy, grace, mercy, peace, and then we get into, like, quote, the meat of it. Like, then it's a and then the Lord stopped me with Paul and Timothy, and he goes, oh, no. Like, just look at them today and let your, your mothers and your dads and the parents and the grandparents, let's all marvel at the grace we see there. So it's kind of neat for me to, again, watch over and over how God has done this over the years. Here we go. We're in 1 Timothy verses 1 and 2. And it says this, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are our verses today. And that's what we're going to look at. So we're going we're to push into this. I do want to pray one more time just for the sake of clarity and, and, and making sure that this is clear and that Christ speaks and, and not me. So let's pray one more time. Lord God, your word open before us. Your word that you moved men so long ago to write that you have sustained by your grace and by your spirit and that we can grasp now by the same spirit to understand the fullness of who you are. Lord, may we be captivated. May we be encouraged. And may, Lord, we be worshipful of who you are and the grace that humbles us all. Lord, I don't pray for eloquent speech. Lord, I'm fine with stuttering. Lord, I'm fine with, with, with gaps in my own knowledge, but Lord, that you may be known and that we can marvel at your salvation and Paul and Timothy and your grace that is just flowing throughout all of Scripture and in our lives. Lord, if at the end we walk out and say, well, we fumbled on this and this and this and this, but oh my goodness, the grace of God is so rich, then praise God. Lord, that's the spirit that... I pray that you bless us with, that you awaken our hearts and that you move through your words to do in our hearts what we cannot do. Lord God, we love you and we pray in Son's holy name. Amen. All right, so here we go. This is the standard greeting. So if you were to look at all of Paul's letters, and they all kind of start like this. We find out who's writing, which is Paul. We find out who he's writing to, which is Timothy. And then we hear a, a common greeting, which is grace and mercy and peace. But if you compare all of his letters, mercy is unique in this letter. 
It's usually grace and peace or something like that. And this one has mercy in there. And I think we're going to see that play throughout Timothy, that there is a call to mercy. But you and I are recipients of such great mercy and such great grace. And we live in such great peace that we honestly, quite honestly, we just take so much for granted. The fact that you and I came here in whatever vehicle we came in, in whatever mood we came in, knowing that in our weakness that there is peace before a holy God, you and I do take that for granted. But this is his standard greeting. And so I, in my personal study, I will do the exact same thing most of us do. Paul, Timothy, grace, mercy, peace from God. Okay, here's the real stuff. When he gets false teachers. There's so much goodness right there. So I do want us to slow down because... I think there's a danger whenever we so easily dismiss Scripture that we're so comfortable with. His Word is alive. It's active. If the Holy God moved someone to write these words, then we, serving and loving a Holy God, need to take time to pay attention to those words. And so here we are. I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Let's just look at Paul. Like, who is this Paul that's writing? Because it does matter who's writing and it does matter who's receiving. That means a lot. I used the illustration last week whenever we read through the entirety of 1 Timothy. And I said, you know, if Chas writes me a letter, right? So if she's the one writing in and I'm the recipient, then it means a whole lot more, no offense, than if Jared writes me a letter or a text. I'll be like, I'll get to that. Right, I'll put it aside. I'll kind of breeze through it, probably read every three. I'm sorry. We've confessed my sins one to another. Read, read every three to four words and if it's a friend. But, but whenever it's my wife who sends me a text or sends me a letter, we actually have a book from whenever we first started dating. And, and we actually have it in a fireproof safe. She doesn't know I put it there. Um, probably, she probably forgot about this book. Um, but we had this book where she was at a camp and, and I was still um, in Russellville. And so we would write in this book back and forth. Instead of like mailing letters, we would just kind of write in this book. We would write these, these letters and then we would either mail it or we would hand it off. And then we've got pictures from whenever we were dating then. And my hair was down to here and, and down to here. And I had this thick goatee and I had a skull cap that I found out like last year through her confession she threw away because she hated skulls. And so like there's pictures of us from back then also. But I love reading that book because it's between us. She would write it. I would receive it. I would write it. She would receive it. There is a deep relationship between Paul and Timothy, and it matters who these men are that are writing to one another. So what I want to say is whenever it says, Paul, you better pay attention. And I'm going to say this. Oh, what incredible grace there is there. Whenever Paul says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, and we go, okay, Paul, you don't, like, you forgot Paul. Like, this is incredible. It's actually pretty miraculous that this Paul is the one writing to Timothy, and we forget that. We forget it because we see Paul and Paul and Paul, and he's written 13 letters, and we see him in Acts going on all these missionary journeys and planting all these churches, and you and I have forgotten who Paul was. And parents, we need to remember who Paul was because there's great comfort and encouragement there. So... Who is this Paul? Like, go back to Acts chapter 7. Go to Acts 7, and we're going to look at Acts 7. And like, we're only going to glance at it. Then we're going to look at Acts 8 and then Acts 9. But you need to remember who this Paul is because it makes that 
Paul, an apostle of the Lord, that much more miraculous. Sorry. At the end of Acts 7, here's what we see. They're stoning Stephen for being a believer. And if you read that carefully, you'll see that there was one who was standing to the side named Saul, and he was holding the coats of the men who were stoning Stephen. They killed Stephen because he proclaimed Christ, and Saul stands to the side, and he holds their coats. It's his way of condoning it. He holds their coats so that they can stone Stephen. Now go to, go to chapter 8. I, I just wanted to glance at that one. In Acts 8... Look at the next three verses. So chapter, or I'm sorry, verses 1, 2, and 3 of Acts chapter 8. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Now look at verse 3. But Saul, now Saul is Paul. Right, Saul will go through a conversion. He will become Paul. But whenever we see Saul here, this is the same Saul, the same Paul that writes 1 Timothy. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Why? Because they proclaimed and believed in Jesus Christ. They clung to the gospel. And so he would enter in house after house and he would drag them off. Now let's go to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, which is our Paul, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way. Now, real quick, notice how way is capitalized there. That was, a, that was a, a way of denoting, okay, they are part of the way. They are Christians. These are early believers. So the way, that's what that means. So he's looking for people who belong to the way. He's looking for Christians. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Y'all, that's who Paul was. He hated the church. He hated Jesus Christ. He got letters so that he could actually go and imprison them. And then once they were in prison, then they would suffer or be killed because of their faith. That's the guy who's writing 1 Timothy. Look at what happens. Chapter 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. This is the part we're all familiar with. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, Saul, said... Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to, him, said to him in a vision, I'm sorry, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to Ananias, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, y'all look at verse 13. Lord, I have heard from many about this man. 
how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And then Acts 9 goes on. Y'all, the, that's the man who's writing the letter to Timothy. That's amazing. We cease to marvel at some of the things that we've become so comfortable over. Like this was a guy who was seeking to destroy the church and Christians and wanted to bring Christianity down from a very outset. And God calls him and uses him. And he's going to write to Timothy. But I just want us to kind of dwell on that because here's what happens. We tend to grow old to the things that we get used to. So we'll say something like, Jesus walked on water, but he's God. Jesus cast out the demons, but I mean, of course, he's God. Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, but, but he's God. Y'all, I mean, seriously? When did we cease to be captivated by those things which are so amazing about our Lord? We have to pray, Lord, humble me again and again so that I don't grow old to the amazing things of who you are. And we see that in the life of Paul. And parents, I keep coming back to it, but I'm just going to say there is something really comforting here for us. And there's something really scary there for us as well. But here's who Paul was. And he will even tell you, if you go read Philippians, since he's a believer at the time he's writing Philippians, he will even tell you how religious and how good he was according to the world standards. He will tell you that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews and he kept perfectly the law. He will tell you that he had all the knowledge of God and was trained by the most excellent and that he was it. He had arrived and yet his actions showed something entirely different. Jesus even speaks of it in the Gospels. He said that there will come a time whenever they will believe that they will doing service to God by persecuting you. And that's speaking of Paul in one sense. Paul thought he was honoring God by killing Christians and condoning the killing of Christians. He thought that that would bring God glory. And so God has to stop him and say, you don't understand. If you love me, then quit persecuting me. That is my church. That is my bride. These are my people. You've missed it entirely. Like that's this Paul. He's the one who's writing to them. He had such a deep-rooted hypocrisy that was rooted in his pride, and he couldn't even see it. He was searching for something else entirely, and then, y'all, he met Christ. And whenever he met Christ, it changed him radically. Ananias, whenever God says to Ananias, go because he's there, and I'm sending you Ananias to lay your hands on him, Ananias says, oh, I've heard about him. The reputation of Paul as being a persecutor was vast. That was his reputation, and then he met Christ. We cannot say that we know Christ and live in such deep-rooted hypocrisy that we are not loving his church and the saints. But that was Paul. Paul summarized it this way. You, this, not judging, I'm just saying that maybe this should be some of our life verse. Go down to uh, verse 16 in 1 Timothy. You know, everybody's got that life verse, like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you. And in the, I probably need 1 Timothy chapter 16. Here's how Paul summarizes his salvation. Chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. <laughs> I love that. 
You know what he's saying there? Like Paul's basically saying, Christ saved me so that he could show everybody else that he is patient. That's maybe some of the life verse that we need because, y'all, we're pretty messed up. We try. We strive. We toil with all the strength that's within us. You follow me for a week and you're going to be like, but Ricky, don't you know all the promises of God? Why is your heart cast down? Why are you downtrodden? Don't you know? Haven't you heard? I'm like, yes, I get it. Okay. But I forget. But Paul, whenever he says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. That's Paul saying, look, Christ saved me. So you all have hope. If he can save someone like me and show his perfect patience, then I'm just telling you, nobody is beyond his reach. All right. So I just love that. Here's Paul just in in a nutshell. One commentator does it this way. Paul comes from the thriving and commercial and intellectual center of Tarsus of Cilicia. He studied under the eminent Jewish rabbi Gamaliel and zealously persecuted the early Christians. And an encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, however, caused a shift in Paul's thinking and a radical reorientation of the course of his life. He who had assumed Jesus to be a messianic pretender, accursed by God, now recognized him as God's Messiah. And I'm spending a whole lot of time just trying to encapsulate who Paul is so that we don't miss this that Paul had set himself against Jesus. He hated Jesus, and yet on that Damascus road in Acts 9, God saved him. And so, you may be a parent today, and you have a child in rebellion, or you have a child who has never known the Lord. Young or old, doesn't matter what, what, what age they are. You have a Saul. And I'm not trying to do some Jesus juke on you right here. I think that this is what God was leading us to, to remember who these men were. But I walked alongside enough parents to know that there are prodigals that you walk with and that are within your households. There are sons and daughters who have left the faith and you with a heartbreaking cry and longing want to know where are they and when are they ever going to call upon the name of the Lord. It's a, it's a, I'm just going to tell you pastorally, it's a weight that I personally do not know and I can't imagine how heartbreaking it is. I wish, I wish I could like, give you like, all promise and all assurance that one day it will all come to fruition and I, I can't. Yes, there is a verse, train up a child in the way he shall go and when he is old he will not depart from it. Like it's a proverb, right? But it's not an absolute truth. It's a general truth that when we raise them up, he or she will not depart. It's a weight, I'm telling you with a heavy heart, I don't know that. But what I can tell you and what I do know is look at Saul. Look at the man who hated God, who wanted nothing to do with God, who was condoning the crushing of the church, and God has a Damascus Road experience with him and says, now you're mine. That's the hope I can give you, is that the Paul who was so influential in the founding and the spread of the gospel is the same one who hated Christ and wanted nothing to do with him until God broke into his life. Salvation, parents, is not in your hands. That's scary. It's not by your eloquence. It's not by your practicing. It's not by having all the pieces in the right place. You should model it. You should preach it. You should have your family worship. You should be doing all these things. Absolutely. But their salvation is not in your hands. It's in God's. And that is a terrifying thing. And you know what? It's a comforting thing. 
It's a comforting thing that it's not based on you and your merit and your performance. It's based solely in God. But Paul, who vehemently set himself against God, was saved by God. He even held the coats of those who stoned Stephen, who preached Jesus Christ. He even went and asked for letters so that he could go in and arrest early Christians. And now he's writing a letter about the church that he was trying to crush. He's writing a letter about how the church should conduct itself now. The Christians that he was trying to destroy, he's writing letters so the Christians throughout all the ages know how they should act and how they should walk. He was an unbeliever. He became a believer because of the road to Damascus. Y'all, here's what I want you to hear in the life of Paul in verse 1. Parents, I hope you hear this. Mothers, I hope you hear this. Again, it's a way that I hope that not all of us walk through, but it's just a reality. But please hear this. What Paul shows me is that no one is so far gone that Christ cannot save him. That's the glory of the gospel. And but for the grace of God, we would be much further along than we are right now. Further gone, I'm sorry. There is hope. I want to walk you through something. There is hope because Jesus Christ is enthroned forever and ever and all authority is his. There is so much hope because if all authority is his, if he's enthroned forever and ever, then no one is so far gone. Will you please turn to Isaiah chapter 59? I want you to just be comforted by this verse. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. says this. Behold, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm always in the ESV, um, so if you're trying to figure out where I am in your phone. So 59 verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not, sh- is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So yes, it is their sins that have separated them from God. Absolutely. But y'all look at verse 1. Here's the wonderful truth that became a reality in Saul who would be Paul's life. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Y'all, I have walked with enough parents to know that there are prodigals in your homes and in our midst. Absolutely. But remember the story of the prodigal son. Two main takeaways, the story of the prodigal son. The son realizes his folly and he returns home. And then the second one, the father embraces him fully and celebrates his return. That is wonderful. The Lord's hand is not so short, parents, that he cannot save the Saul. There's no limit. No one is so far gone. I have a a friend who, with no doubt a heavy heart, prays, Lord, whatever it takes, whatever it takes to get his prodigal son's attention. That's a Damascus Road prayer. And knowing this, friend, he really means it. He sees the salvation of the Lord and the beauty of it and the eternal rest of it and how valuable and precious it is that he's willing to pray, Lord, whatever, whatever it takes. For his prodigals. And we know that if they turn to the Lord, 
there is eternal forgiveness. There is eternal rest. There is a welcoming. There is a celebration. There is joy and there is salvation. That if they but turn. So parents, maybe that's the prayer. Lord, whatever it takes, whatever it takes for them to know who you are. Y'all, I will tell you, there is much wisdom and a whole lot of humility in the prayer like that. But it is a heavy prayer. It's a prayer that fully realizes that, Lord, you have to do a work that I cannot do, though I have tried, though I have strived, though I'm uh, weighty with it. I cannot do these things. You can. It's a very weighty, humble prayer, but it does this. It completely places them in God's hands. And that's where Saul was. As I was reading about Saul and Paul, it struck me. I wonder how many, because Ananias says, I've heard of this man. We've heard of his persecution throughout all the regions and how he's even coming here to persecute us. So his fame, his reputation went out throughout all the land. And I just wonder how many of them were praying for Saul. We'll never know. We're never going to know how many of them were actually praying for this man who was persecuting the church. But we do know that God delights himself in operating through the prayers of his people. But Saul was lost. And in a miraculous way, God saved him. Like, that's amazing. That's the guy who wrote this letter. That's what I wanted to spend time. I want you to realize that that guy was a wicked man, but such great grace radically transformed him. And look how God used him. And God even said from the beginning, you will suffer for my name. That's a whole different sermon, right? That's a whole different gospel that we'll attack throughout the the different days that no ill, no suffering will come to us. Paul knew what it was like to suffer. But what was greater is he knew the great grace of God. So I want you to look at Paul. Look at Timothy. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Okay, so Paul does refer to him as a true child. Number one, Paul is not his real father. Number two, Paul did not convert him. What it means by my true child in the faith is they spent time together. So I do want you to go to Acts chapter 16. This is where Timothy first comes into the picture. And I feel like as we look at these verses, God gives us two glimpses uh, of um, men for him and the grace and how they received their faith. Perfect for today in God's timing. In Acts chapter 16, those of us who who just went through the book of Philippians, um, you remember that this is, it's in Acts chapter 16 where the Philippian church is first planted. Okay, so in chapter 16, verse 1, it begins like this. Paul, because Saul has already become Paul. He, he's, in, uh, he's on his missionary journeys now. So this is the same Paul. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the same Timothy to who he's writing. Okay, look at this. Named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. That means his father was an unbeliever. His father was a Gentile. Verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra, Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him, and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Verse 4, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them, they, Paul and Timothy, delivered to them for observe. I'm sorry, the, the elders and the, the elders and the leaders delivered to them for observances the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. 
So this is where Timothy and Paul first meet, Acts chapter 16. That's way back here. And then all these letters are written, not always chronological, but this is the Timothy to whom Paul is writing. And there's something really, really neat and cool there. Okay, so I want us to push a little bit further, but you got you to look at some of those things in Acts 16. A disciple was there named Timothy. So that's a Timothy. And it says, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Quick takeaways. A disciple was there. Timothy was already a believer whenever Paul met him. So he didn't convert him like we see Paul converting out. Timothy was already a believer. He was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a, was a Greek. You got to catch that. Mom was a believer. Dad was not a believer. He was a Greek. He was a Gentile. That's going to become very important here in just a moment. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Such was the reputation of Timothy that others knew who he was and he was well spoken of by the early believers. Okay, now look at this. this I'm sorry, I say look at this. Just listen to me. I want to put that in conjunction with in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Okay, so I'm going I'm to do some math for you here real quick. You read the commentaries and you look at the scholars now, all the timelines play out. From the time that they meet to the time that Paul is writing to Timothy, there's a good probably 10 to 15 years, and 15 years is where many of them are landing, between their meeting and the writing of this letter. So this time has passed. And whenever they pull all that together and for Timothy to be in Acts 16 and to be a young man, well spoken of by the brothers and able to go on this missionary journey, they're actually calculating in 1 Timothy that Timothy is probably about in his mid-30s. So whenever Paul writes to him and says, let them not look down on you because of your youth, he's writing to someone who's probably in that 30 to 40 range as a pastor. So youth still in his 30s. That just made me feel really good. I just want to kind of throw that in there. Got one more year of youth. But what I really want you to get out of it is that he was well spoken of. His reputation was known. He was already a believer from a mixed marriage of a believing and an unbelieving parent. But he was, his faith was genuine enough that others knew of it. And then the other thing we take away from Acts 16 is that Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him on his journey. This is where their ministry began together. So this is who he's writing to. He's writing to someone he... Paul's writing to someone who really is like a son. He's much younger, and they're doing ministry together for well over a decade. And then he tells Timothy, we're going to see in the next verses of, of Timothy that we're not getting to today, that he tells him, oh, you're staying at Ephesus. And so now there's that longing of a father for his son at a great distance, and they're writing, and he's saying, here's how you need to conduct the church of God. I'm no longer destroying it. I'm trying to build it up through the grace of God that works within me. There's a, there's a good summary. I'm, I, by the way, I didn't do these summaries. Other scholars did these summaries, but I love how they do it. Here's all of Timothy packed together, and I want to give you some great comfort, mothers. Okay, here's, here's all of Timothy. Timothy was a product of a mixed marriage of a Gentile father and a Jewish mother. He was a believer, having been taught scriptures from his youth. Recommended by his local church, Timothy joined Paul on his second missionary journey and shared in the evangelization of Macedonia and Achaia, he was associated with Paul during much of his extended ministry in Ephesus, traveled with him from Ephesus to Macedonia to Corinth, back to Macedonia to the Asia Minor, and he was with Paul during his first imprisonment. Timothy also served as Paul's emissary on at least three occasions prior to his current assignment in Ephesus to Thessalonica, Corinth, and to Philippi. Paul frequently called him fellow worker. 
and involved him in the writing of six of his apostolic missives, the, the letters. You're going to see Timothy is mentioned in First and Second Thessalonians, Second Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. And Hebrews chapter 13 mentions his release from an otherwise unknown imprisonment. Here is a young man who loved the Lord from an early age and God used him to spread the gospel. I just think it's pretty radically cool that you have Paul who hated the church and is radically saved by the grace of God, writing to Timothy, who at a young age is radically saved by the grace of God, and God is using them to spread his glory throughout the nations, even to us today. Like, that's amazing. Okay, so I want you to see this. All right, so go to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Moms, you need this one. Not because I, as a pastor or one of the elders, are saying, hey, you need this. I'm saying... This is just a cool verse. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, if we were reading it on our quiet time, I think we'd go way too fast past this verse, but look at it. Paul writing to Timothy in the second letter, by the way, called 2 Timothy because it was a second letter to Timothy. Okay, All right. Deep theolog- theological insight there. Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Moms, did you catch that great grace? Paul knows Timothy intimately. They've spent over a decade doing ministry together. So he knows where Timothy's faith has come from. He knows his household. He knows his family. He knows Lois. He knows of Eunice. And Paul writes to Timothy and he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith that began in your mother and your grandmother, Lois and Eunice. Moms, I told you earlier that that you may feel tired and you may feel weak and inefficient and insufficient and you may question your decisions and you may wonder why can't I do better or I'm striving to do this and that and I told you it may be valid. I don't mean that as a dismissive. I mean it as an encouragement. You weren't meant to do parenting on your own. You weren't meant to be a mother on your own. I don't mean that as an encouragement for the father so the, the father has to absolutely be involved. I mean it as in your motherhood you're partnering with Christ and it's for the salvation of souls of your kids. And it was evident in Eunice and Lois, and it caught. Moms, your faith and what you proclaim and what you do is sufficient enough for God to use that in the work of your children. The sincere faith Timothy, Timothy who would lead the church, who would be sent by Paul, all of that, Paul says, was rooted and seated by Lois and Eunice, your mother and grandmother. Moms, I just want you to know that. I think it's good because sometimes you feel like you're talking about these things and, and you're working alongside your kids and you're wondering, is this even going to take root? And in Paul, Paul wasn't raised in a Christian household. He was raised in a Jewish household. He knew that law perfectly. In Timothy, he was raised in a Christian household. And Paul says, I've seen your faith. And it began then. And it's firmly rooted in you. I have seen this. I just wanted you to catch that. There was a road, for Damascus, a road to Damascus for Paul. And then there was the genuine belief of a mother and a grandmother for Timothy. But all of it, y'all, is by grace. All of it is in God's timing and by God's salvation. So Paul, by grace, is writing to Timothy, by grace, for us who have been saved by grace for the glory of God. 
We would miss that if we just said, Paul and Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace to you. But that's how it starts. You got to know who's writing and to whom he's writing. You got to know all that context. Otherwise, we just go, okay, this seems like some pretty good advice. No, this is God-given wisdom from a man who hated the God and who hated church to someone who had genuine faith but has been raised up by this man. And they're going to give us instruction. And if you remember reading through 1 Timothy, y'all, there's some hard stuff that we cannot avoid whenever we preach the way that we preach. Whenever we go verse by verse and, and word by word and passage by passage, we don't get to skip over some of these hard passages. Though should a tornado happen, you know, the day that we're about to open one of those verses. But then we've still got to pick it up the very next time we, we meet. Those are your recipients. Look at the salutation that we're going to end. He writes, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. In the 1990s, we would write a letter to, we'd write letters and you'd pass them in the hallway and you even learned how to fold them really cool so that, you know, they're really compact. And then you pull this little lever and then the whole note comes undone. I mean, it was a whole art form. And the youth today don't get it because they text message everything. They put everything on Instagram and Snapchat. But you, you folded letters a certain way so that you could even walk through the hall and you could toss them and they had a certain weight to them and then it could be caught and then it could be slid into the locker. I mean, there's so much that we've lost in the decades. But as you would write those letters, we began in the 90s like this. What's up? Not much here. <laughs> Which then evolved to what's arrow and then not much here which then became what's arrow question mark nmh like every letter what's up not much here that's how you started a letter y'all this is just how paul starts a letter but there's some really good words for you and i to remember to the praise and glory of his name so this is just his standard way of doing it pay attention to it but here's a brief summary of those words grace mercy peace grace Grace is not, I'm sorry, grace is getting what we do not deserve. That's what grace means. Getting what you do not deserve. So parents, if you're getting ready to, to punish, you might actually be showing mercy if you choose not to, but you might be showing grace if you give something um, that they don't deserve. You're showing grace. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. I'm going to break that down for us uh, as we're closing. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So if you take a quarter and you, you have heads on one side, tails on the other, both must be there for the identity of that quarter to be what it is. Grace and mercy stem only and fully from God in salvation. To experience His grace is to know His mercy. To know His mercy is to know His grace. We get grace and mercy. And then peace is what we eternally have with the Holy God. Don't neglect the peace you have with the Holy God. So what does that mean it means that by the death of Christ, God has granted that we who are Christians should know these three things in our lives. Grace. Him giving us what we do not deserve, which is Jesus Christ. Y'all, we don't deserve Him. There's nothing we could ever do to attain such a holiness that we would deserve the Holy One of all of eternity. So He gives us Jesus Christ. He gives us heaven. He gives us eternal forgiveness for our sins. Such grace. We did not deserve any of that. Such mercy, not giving us what we do deserve. He does not give us the punishment for our sins. He laid that on Christ. He does not give us hell, which is, the pun which is what we deserve for our sins. He does not give us eternal condemnation or eternal separation from a holy God. He has given us great mercy that he doesn't give us any of those. Instead, he says, I'm not going to give you those things, but I'm also going to give you what you don't deserve. And that's Jesus Christ, the prize of all of heaven. 
The one to whom every knee bows is yours fully, grace and mercy. And I tend to go there and I'm like, grace and mercy and peace. Okay, got verse one done. No, grace and mercy from a holy God. And all of this stems from peace. This is what we eternally have with a holy God. Y'all, this is the promise of the gospel. And what is so absolutely so, so, so missed. So please just listen very closely, believers. Some verses to remind you that if you are a Christian, have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and there is a peace between you and God. Listen to these. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. I didn't get that whenever I was younger. I wasted a whole lot of time not just confessing my sin and just repenting of my sin, but punishing and expecting additional punishment for the sin that I committed. And he said, oh, the death I died, I died once for all. That forgiveness is complete. Listen to this one. For the Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Ephesians says that Jesus Christ marches in triumphal procession to the throne, giving gifts to men, the church, along the way. Like he's triumphed, righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. We can't undo the work of God in our lives. You can't stop what God has already begun. And then this last one, he says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I, church, hear this, I will remember their sins no more. That's what the peace of God is in our lives. He is thrice holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And if we didn't gather to sing today, if all the churches were quiet, Jesus says even the rocks would cry out. There are stars spinning in space. And I didn't know this, but black holes actually make a sound in space. They actually emit waves. I just learned this this, this week, and you can, it's like one of the new, uh, new uh, things in the news feed. So you're going to see this all throughout. But black holes actually emit sounds. Like all of this is going on in this vacuum and in this distance so far away from us, everything doing what God created to do. And all of creation will bow, and all of creation knows that he is God. And that God, who is so majestic and holy and grand, has said to Saul, you are mine. He has said to Timothy, you are mine. And he has said to you and, it, you and me that we are his and we are his people. And he will remember our sins no more, all because of his grace. And by his grace, he has told us what he wants his church to look like. And so we're going to keep plowing through 1 Timothy next week. Y'all, grace, mercy, and peace, these are the present and eternal realities of the gospel. And they're for you and for me, and they're for all the believers that we should walk in them. Let me pray. Lord, help us to never forget the gospel. And Lord, may we never cease to be astounded by the depth of love that you have for us. But Lord, move us to place our trust in you. Lord, not only to be saved, but Lord, as the saved, as the Christians, as those who are part of the way, as those who are part of your church. Lord, as believers, help us to trust in you, not only for our salvation, but for the salvation of others. Lord, I pray that you give comfort to our mothers and to our parents. Lord, I pray that you give encouragement to all of us who call upon your name. And Lord, may we never cease to marvel at Paul. And cease to marvel at Timothy, not for the men that they are, but for the gospel that saved them and that you would do such a work in their lives. 
Lord, from Paul to Timothy and all of grace that you've given even to us. Lord, we love you and we praise your holy name. Amen.